Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, last week we stopped our series in Revelation for a short break to uh, celebrate the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And this week we get back to our series on Revelation on this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, when you, if you were here on Mother's Day, this sermon is much more fitting. You know, on Mother's Day I talked about the most inappropriate thing ever on Mother's Day, the the prostitute riding a beast in Revelation. But this week, on Memorial Day weekend, I'm talking about the final battle of God over evil. So that seems much more appropriate. But I want to bring you up to speed on where we've been in Revelation. Uh, We've looked at it for six weeks now. And Revelation has, and we have one left after this week. It's an eight-week series. And by the very nature of Revelation being a 22-chapter book and me doing this in eight weeks, you know I'm going to move pretty fast. And so my hope is, in moving fast, that you do not lose the overall picture of what the book is doing, the argument, the flow of thought of what the book is doing. Sometimes if you take such a detailed look at something, you can't see the whole thing. And so by taking this approach and looking at Revelation and its big scope and its big themes and its big ideas, my hope is, by the end, you have some semblance of being able to think through the flow of what this book is doing. In the book of Revelation, more than telling us about the detailed events and chronology of how the life, how the world will unfold, this book is about teaching us the major theme that God will finally and forever one day defeat evil. That is what it's about. It is really the story that every story is all about, whether it's Harry Potter, you know, good versus evil, except this is the true version, that God will come into the world in the midst of good and evil, and he will defeat forever and finally evil. And the book of Revelation is all about that. And it was written to the church. It was written to us so that we may be encouraged in the midst of suffering. It was written to give us a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. A heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. Why? Because when you're in the midst of the swamp, it's really hard. You know, when you're up to your armpits and alligators, it's really hard to have God's perspective on the swamp. And so he gave us this book to make sense of our world, to make sense of evil, to make sense of why he allows it. And then he wrote it to defend why he will one day defeat it. Why, how and why he will defeat evil. In week one, we saw that the book was written to a suffering church to encourage them to be faithful in light of suffering. That although this book describes future events during a period of time called the tribulation, the book was written to a church that was already experiencing incredible suffering. And so the book is written to a suffering church to encourage them to be faithful. And the message goes something like this, which maybe isn't the most hopeful, encouraging thing in the world. I know you're suffering now. The suffering will get worse, but don't worry. I'll defeat it in the end. Yes? To encourage a suffering church to overcome, to be faithful, to resist compromise. In week three, we started to look, or week two, we started to look at not just the picture of the church, that it's written to the church, but we started to look at the picture of what heaven looks like right now. What is going on in heaven? And we saw in chapter four and five that right now in heaven, as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross, he has already achieved victory over evil. 
that Jesus is in the center of the throne room of God being worshipped by the heavenly hosts for what he has accomplished on the cross. The picture in Revelation chapter 5 is that of a slain lamb who stands victorious in the center of the throne room of God. And as a result of the slain lamb, of his sacrifice, of his willingness to give his life, it is him, the slain lamb, Jesus, who is able to now bring history to its unfolding times. It is because of the sacrifice of Jesus that God is able to finally defeat and bring about the defeat of evil. And so, Jesus opens a scroll, and now the book of Revelation starts to tell us of a series of judgments. I believe that these judgments, I'm like 51% sure I'm right. So, I believe these judgments describe the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming from three different angles. They describe the same period. Again, I'm 51% sure I'm right on that. But I'm convinced I'm sure about the major themes. The first set of judgments is called the seal judgments. And in the seal judgments, the major question that is asked here is, how will you survive the process of God ridding the world of evil? At the end of the sixth judgment, seal judgment, the people cry out of the earth, who can stand? And in chapter 7, the answer is given. It is those who follow in the path of the slain lamb, those who make up his army, which is not an army of impressive, strong males, but a countless number of men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue who are not outfitted with swords, but who follow in the path of the slain lamb with the blood dripping from his sacrifice from his neck. Isn't that graphic enough? Chapters 8, verse 6, through the end of chapter 11, tell us about the second set of three judgments, the trumpet judgments. And again, they're describing the period between Christ's second coming when this future tribulation starts that hasn't yet started, and then the eventual coming of time when God will end and defeat evil, the two comings. And in the trumpet judgments, the major question here is, what will cause humanity to turn back to God? There is all this judgment that is taking place, but we see that judgment alone will not lead people to repentance. We sing a song really frequently here. Uh, I think it's called Your Mercy, and it has this line in it. Your loving kindness leads me to repentance. It is not God's judgment alone that leads us to repentance. It is his judgment mixed with his mercy which is why my wife is like the best disciplinarian in the world because she is rigid and firm with boundaries but compassionate with love even with me like if i want to do something no <laughs> i love you but no <laughs> shouldn't have said that now but you get what i'm saying mercy mixed with boundaries with judgment and so the peoples of the world, they experience these judgments. And the purpose of the judgments is not to give raw bottoms, you know, just whip them. The purpose of the judgments is to lead them to repentance. And while many do, in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, it says, still there are some who did not repent. They did not repent of their sexual immorality. They did not repent of their lying. They don't repent of their stealing and thieving. And they continue to worship. That's the language to worship the forces of evil. 
even after it is those very forces of evil that have tortured them. Yes. Who will repent? It is God's judgment mixed with his mercy that leads people to repentance, but yet we see that still not all will repent. The book of Revelation is a clear defense of this idea that not all will repent. And so what does happen to those who choose evil? And that is the major theme of the next set of judgments, the bold judgments, found in chapter 12 through, verse chap- uh, through chapter 16. What happens to those who choose evil? And the bold judgments show us that those who choose to follow in the path of the beast, which is a personification of evil, those who follow in the path of the beast will suffer its defeat. For there will come a time where God will no longer be long-suffering, but will finally and forever judge evil. And then last week, or not last week, it was two weeks ago, that inappropriate Mother's Day sermon, the prostitute and the beast. And we saw that that day is coming when Babylon, the prostitute, will fall. And Babylon is a metaphor standing for the political kingdoms of this world that use money and use might, power, to force people to follow and obey them. You can always tell the forces of evil from the forces of goodness. And the forces of evil, in some ways, are much easier to follow, for they force you to do so. Those who really love you and care for you give you the freedom to make choices. They do not subject you with money and might. And yet Babylon does this. And as a result of Babylon, there are many who get wealthy, and there are many who rise to power, and there are also many who want to defeat that version of Babylon because it subjects those who do not follow in its path. But so far in our world, hasn't it always been that when one Babylon rises to power, it eventually will fall and a new Babylon will take its place? The one dictator in Africa, the people rise up and they put a new leader and that, other dic- that guy becomes a dictator much like the one before it. Because Babylon, the forces, of, political forces that we align ourselves with, that use money and might to force people to get in line, to force people to worship them, will eventually fail and cannot bring you the happiness that you desire and must be resisted. And this morning, we move now to the seventh kind of unit of thought found in the book of Revelation, where the the author, John, gives us a picture of the day that is coming when evil will finally and forever be defeated. And really, the purpose of this section if we were to put it in a question form, like I've done the rest of the series, is really a defense in some ways of God. A defense of God. And it is really answering this question, why must God destroy evil? For I think there are many in our world, I don't think, I know. I read enough and talk to enough people. There are many people in our world that wonder, why must judgment be so harsh? In fact, why must judgment come at all? Why can't God just forgive us? 
I won't answer that for you now, but I will answer it, hopefully, before the end of this sermon. And by the end of the sermon, I hope to give you a picture of why God must destroy evil. The text that we're going to be looking at this morning is found in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, and we're going to move our way through to the end of chapter 20. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, if you're using one of our Bibles that we provide, and if you don't have one, we'd encourage you to follow along. It's on page 1003, and this is the easiest book to find because it's the last one. You just go to the last few pages. 1003. The structure of the passage that we are going to be looking at in just a moment goes something like this. Verse 11 through 21 is going to describe a final battle. Verses 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 through 10 is going to describe, uh, or 20, verse 1 through 7 is going to describe a millennial period of peace. And then chapter 8 through 15 is going to describe another final battle. Maybe it's a second final battle, or maybe it's the same battle, I'm not sure. And it's going to describe the judgment that comes afterwards. I have opinions on it. I'll talk to you about chronology in a little bit. I've resisted that throughout this sermon series, but I will do it today. That's where we're headed. But as we look at these passages of Scripture, I want you to have in the back of your mind this overarching question. Why must God destroy evil? Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows, on him that no one knows, but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. In these short three verses, there are seven descriptions of the rider. On the white horse. He is called faithful and true. He judges in righteousness and he makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, going along with the apocalyptic images of otherworldly. He has many crowns on his head. Again, this is symbolic. You know, you can't put too many crowns on your head, or maybe he was really good, you know, like the English people that can balance. That's not the point. Don't get too literal with it. He has a name that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in robes, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. I want to I focus in on two of these because I only have time for two, and they're the last two. Notice that he is dressed in robes, white robes, dipped in blood. This imagery would remind the reader's of John's day, of a very famous passage, a very violent passage in Isaiah chapter 63. If you have time, you should write that down. You should read it this afternoon because it's just beautifully terrifying. In Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6, there is the picture of the righteous judge coming at the end of time. He is this huge, majestic figure who comes to judge the nations, and he does it through trampling through the world, stomping on the evil humanity like they are grapes in one of those wine presses. I've only ever seen these a couple times. Whenever It seems like they're always in these Tuscan romantic movies where there's that wooden bucket and then the women go in them and they stomp on the grapes and their feet get all red. And it's always in romantic comedy, so I've only like seen this once in my life. So, But... 
Here, the picture is not so romantic or beautiful. It is of the coming judge. And when he comes, he is dressed in white. And then he stops on the nations, evil nations of the world. And his robes are made bloody. But notice here that there is a reverse, as there's been a reverse throughout all of Revelation in the imagery that it draws on in the Old Testament. The reverse here is, in Isaiah 63, the judge comes and his robes are white and they are made bloody by the blood of the nations. But here, the white rider on the horse comes to judge the nations wearing white robes, but they are already made bloody. They are dipped in blood. Why the reversal? What is the significance? Here the significance is the white rider on the horse is the slain lamb and the blood on his robes is his own. Yes? He has come and the reason, according to Revelation, he is able to bring history to its conclusion, which is to say the reason he is able and worthy to judge humanity is because of his self-sacrificial love. Perhaps you'll remember from Revelation chapter 5, it's found in verse 5 and 6, where John is told of the one who is able to open the scroll to bring history to its conclusion. And he hears the mighty angel say, it is the Lion of Judah, it is the Root of David. These are classic Old Testament images of military might. But when John turns and sees, he does not see a mighty warrior, but he sees a lamb looking as if he'd been slain with his neck cut, as though he's been sacrificed. But this lamb is not on the altar dead. He is risen, and he is standing in the middle of the throne room of God, having self-sacrificially given of his life out of his love for humanity. And it is as a result of that act that makes him worthy to judge. And in the same way here in Revelation 19, 13, it is this Jesus, the slain lamb, who comes ready to judge the nations, but not white and clean, but with robes dipped in his own blood because it is the blood of his self-sacrificial love. And his name is the Word of God. A classic image or title for Jesus. It's attributed to Jesus in John chapter 1 by the same author. The book of uh, John, the Gospel of John, is written by John who wrote Revelation. And in the, in the beginning of his gospel, John says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was, with, or the word was God. For Jesus is this word. The author of Hebrews picks up on this imagery in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I won't have you turn there this morning, but it's a very famous passage, verse, chapter 4, verse 12, and verse 13, where it says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It is able to penetrate the joints and marrow, which is a symbolism that he explains, the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And then it goes on to say this, and we will be laid bare before him who will judge, before him. The pronoun is not referring to a book, Although the word of God often refers to, we often think of it as in terms of the Bible. But Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. The pronoun in verse 13 is a personal pronoun. And it's not referring simply to a codex book. It is referring to Jesus himself, who has the ability and the right 
to judge. He is the word of God. And he has the authority to do so. For this self-sacrificial king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 16. And so he comes to judge. We read on in verses 14 through 16, we see that there are some descriptions of the actions that Jesus will take. He will lead an army from heaven, verse 14. He will strike down the nations with a sword that proceeds from his mouth. He will rule the nations with an iron scepter, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. That imagery back to Isaiah chapter 63. These are all actually Old Testament imagery. The sword coming from the mouth of the Messiah comes from Isaiah 11. And the one who will be Messiah reigning with an iron scepter comes from Psalm chapter 2. All of these, chapter 19, verse 11 through 16, is to leave us with the feeling of the majesty of the one who sits astride the white horse coming in judgment. For he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is Jesus, the slain lamb, who has given of his life in self-sacrificial love. And it is him, Jesus, who brings history to its conclusion in the final defeat of evil. An angel cries out, and he cries out to the birds of the air, telling the birds, the great supper of our God is upon us. This is uh, symbolism that's meant to cause the reader to think back to chapter 19, verse 8, where the saints in heaven are told to be made ready for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And now, in chapter 19, verse 17 and 18, he tells the birds to get ready for the great supper of our God in which the carrion birds of the earth will feed, man, this is so gross, on the flesh of the evil who have followed after the beast. In chapter 19, verse 19, Satan and the false prophet and the beast amass a great army. And in verse 20, the army is defeated without even a contest. There is no description of a great battle between Jesus and Satan, in which they have this cool sword fight. There's nothing like that. Jesus simply conquers them, and he puts the false prophet and the beast in a lake of burning sulfur and fire. In other words, Jesus will not allow evil to go unabated forever. He will judge it finally and forever. According to Revelation, this will usher in a period next called the millennium. It's described in chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, or 6, the millennium. The millennial period is one of actually the most controversial passages in the Bible. I don't know why that is for some reason, but for some reason, the details of how the world will unfold seem to be extremely a subject that people are extremely passionate about and who are extremely uh, angry about when you disagree with them. I don't know why that's the case. I don't think that's very helpful. But I've done, here's my thought on all of that. I have a view and I'll share it and I'll share what our church's view and happily those things align. But for some reason, these divisive issues seem to plague the church at times. And here's what I've done, and I had to do it as a part of my training, and I've refreshed it since then, not this past week. 
<laughs> As a part of my seminary training, we had a class, one of my Hebrew classes, in which we studied all, every Old Testament prophecy in the Bible, that, and then we studied its fulfillment. So not the ones that hadn't been fulfilled yet, but every Old Testament prophecy in which the author says later, and this was done to fulfill this. We had to study every single one. And you know what I found as I went through that? I almost never could guess what would actually happen from the original prophecy. Some of the most famous prophecies in all of the Bible, when you read their original prophecy and you read the way it comes about, are different than you'd expect, and they're more wonderful in their fulfillment. Let me give you two examples really quick. They're very famous. If you haven't heard of them, no problem. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a prophecy that the Davidic line will never end. And yet, within a few short hundred years of that prophecy, it does. The Davidic, the, the nation of Israel is led into captivity. But then you learn later, but the prophecy has not, not been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in a different way and that Jesus will fulfill it. And there is a period of time in which the, the line is broken, but like Aragon, it will be remade, yes? And Jesus will reign and rule forever. But read 2 Samuel and you'd never, ever guess that. One of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament is about the virgin birth of Jesus. It's found in Isaiah chapter 7. But if you were to read Isaiah chapter 7, you wouldn't even guess it's about a boy 700 years afterwards. You'd think it's about a boy in that context. And yet it was, and it is, is more. Because prophecy, as I've said many times throughout the series, is like looking through the fog into the future. It's just really hard to make out the details. And like I joked earlier, I'm about 51% sure of the details about how history will unfold, which is to say I lean slightly to a direction that is in line with the way I was taught in my tradition. But man, is it difficult. If history's taught us anything, it's taught us that those who make bold predictions about the exact timing of the events of how life will unfold in the end, they're all wrong. So maybe by the very fact that I lean a certain direction, it means I'll be wrong. I don't really believe that. You see what I mean? Revelation 20 describes a period called the millennium. There are three main views, I'm going to do this super quick, that describe the millennium. People think there is a post-millennial view, an amillennial view, and a premillennial view of how the millennium will unfold. The premillennial view teaches, this is the one I hold in our church, it's, it's our tradition, the church it teaches this, that this world is made up of good and evil right now, but that there is coming a day when evil will get worse. It is the events that we've been looking at in Revelation 6 through 19, that things will get worse until the final end. But before that time happens, most who take this premillennial view believe that the church will be raptured and will not go through the events of Revelation 6 through 19. That's what our church holds. That's the way I slightly lean. It's my teaching and my tradition. And that the millennium period will take place and the, there will be a final battle at the end of a seven-year tribulation period. After that final battle, there will be a thousand-year reign. And after that thousand-year reign, there will be another final battle. And then there will be the eternal state where God's reality has come to earth as it is in heaven. There's a post-millennial view that teaches that... <laughs> Humanity will usher in the millennium, the kingdom of God. And through education and through improvements, we will bring this about. And that Satan is already bound. 
There's an amillennial view that believes there won't be a thousand-year period. Ah means no. It just believes that the thousand-year period is symbolic and that there'll come a day when God will defeat evil. It's more complex than that, but that's all I want to share. That's all I have time for. While I lean pre-millennial for sure, the one thing that this millennial period is teaching us, which is very clear, is that God will defeat evil. He will usher in a time of peace and security. But even into that perfect environment where evil has been defeated, before the millennial period, you see in chapters 20, verse 1 through 3, that Satan will be bound for this period, a period, it says, of a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand-year period, he will be released. What the millennial period is really teaching us that cannot be questioned and that nobody questions is that the millennial period teaches us that it is not our environment that is our problem. It's not. The millennial period is perfect. Christ is reigning in person. Christ is doing everything right. The people of the earth are experiencing peace and prosperity. But at the end of the millennial period, Satan will be released, verse 7, And he will cause havoc and chaos. And the people who experience perfection with God ruling will still fall prey to sin. We see today, in our day today, that humanity has all kinds of bad examples. And sometimes it's easy to say, well, so-and-so couldn't help it. She had bad examples or he had bad examples. The millennial period is teaching us that it is not our environment that is the problem. It is our human heart that needs to begin anew, that needs to be saved, that needs to be restored and renewed. And that when Satan is let go, I believe that the millennial period that's described in Revelation 20 exists narratively within the context of Revelation to teach us this, that God must defeat evil finally and forever. There is no keeping evil on a leash as a pet and thinking I can control it. That evil must be defeated finally and forever or the human heart will always stray to it. And the people who choose evil must be destroyed so that God's reality can come to earth. (laughs) Let me say that again. Why must evil be destroyed so that God's reality can come to earth. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the prayer that sounds so beautiful has a side to it that is dark and which we wish we could avoid. That for evil to be destroyed, God must destroy it. Let me ask you this. This is kind of a silly thing. Imagine we took a different stance on this. I'm going to give you two quick illustrations. Imagine we had somebody who steals or murders constantly, whichever one you want. Let's say they steal and murder constantly. And we've put them in our prison system and we keep them there. But you know what? We feel bad because the food isn't there real good. And, you know, they don't have freedom. So we let them out thinking, let's be merciful. And then they steal and murder again, so we put them back in prison. But after a while, we feel bad, so we let them out again. And over and over this goes. Is this a merciful system? It's a stupid system. 
Imagine now, and this will be easier for moms to relate to, even for me a little bit. Imagine you've got your little boy, and he goes to school every day, and he gets picked on. Yep. Picked on bad, you know, not, not a little. And he gets punched. And he comes home with shiners all the time, and he's pushed down. His lunch money is stealing. He's wasting away. That parent does not say day after day, you know, honey, just let it go. It doesn't go to the principal and say, I hope you can be merciful. You want the beating and stealing to end. Yes? (laughs) To end. Revelation is a defense of why God must destroy evil. I want to remind you of something. This book, throughout all of its telling, is a book of judgment in which the inhabitants of the earth choose to follow Satan and the beast even when they see the terrible chaos. There's one particularly vivid image of this. It's found in Revelation 9 where humanity, all the humans in the world who do not follow Jesus, the follow the slain lamb, where these like demon locusts, these weird demon locusts, I have no idea what those things are. I'm like 2% certain, I'm 0% certain of what they are. But these demon locusts torture the inhabitants of the earth and they come out of this place called the abyss where there's smoke and it smells bad. And they're tortured for five months and a little later in the story in chapter 11 and then finally the demon locusts leave. But these same people that were tortured from the demon locust, when another being arises out of the abyss, they start to worship him from the same place. These images mean something. I don't know exactly what they mean, but what they teach us is very clear. That there are some people who no matter how many chances they are given, will not turn away from their evil. And if God's reality is to come to earth, the forces of evil that empower and encourage them in evil must be destroyed as well as all of those who refuse to turn to God and goodness. Otherwise, the reality of God might never come, can never come to earth as it is in heaven. And the God who judges these people does not do so with gleeful delight, but with the blood of his own sacrifice on his robes as he comes to judge. With tears in his eyes, I believe, now I'm extrapolating, that it is unavoidable. But yet, there is a future coming reality, the reality of God, And it cannot take place until Jesus, the slain lamb, finally and forever defeats evil. And so next week, we're going to conclude this series by looking at what that looks like. In a sermon that is called The Marriage of Heaven and Earth. It is one of some of the most beautiful and hopeful passages in all of the Bible. And it teaches us this, the answer to this question, which I hope that you'll think about this week. It's a wonderful question to meditate on. What will the reality, what will reality look like 
when evil has been destroyed. And next week, we'll talk about it. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would transform our hearts and minds to see the reality and the beauty of Jesus. It's in whose name we pray. Amen.